Hello, fellow human beings. This is Robert Roach on the Type 1 Planet podcast. And in this episode, I had the opportunity to talk to Nick Agar. He's a philosopher and author, a professor of ethics at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. And he spent the last 30 years trying to figure out what it is that artificial intelligence and technology is going to do to us as human beings and to our economy and to our civilization. And uh, Nick uh, wrote a book in 2019 called How to Be Human in the Digital Economy. We actually focus quite a bit on this book in the interview, talking about what it means to have a social digital economy. First of all, we focus on the digital economy. It's, it's totally pressed forward by artificial intelligence, replacing many of the things that human beings typically did. And we focus on as well the things that are irreplaceable by technology that human beings need. And that social economy, those social tasks that humans do, that puts value on humanness, is the, is the premise of this book and is the premise of the conversation in many ways. We talk about things that are happening now, uh, the social displacement and the economic displacement caused by artificial intelligence. We talk about a uni uh, universal basic income um, and, and what goes into that. We talk about the dystopian vision of what a social economy and the commodification of human interactions could look like. And we really dive into the philosophy of artificial general, the philosophy of artificial general intelligence as well. Such an interesting conversation. Nick is a ton of fun to talk to. I really can't wait to have him on. Um, he's a real natural in, in, in communicating these kind of complex ideas in a way that not only you understand, but is really enjoyable to listen to. Um, thank you for listening to Type 1 Planet. Please check us out at Type 1 Planet on social media. Visit us at type1planet.net, which is our website. Reach out to us. Give us your feedback, your ideas, your suggestions. We look forward to hearing from everyone. Thank you for participating in this project, and uh, hope to hear from you soon. Enjoy. All right, hello and welcome to Type 1 Planet. My name is Robert Roach, and I'm joined today by Nick Agar, a philosopher, an author, a professor of ethics at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. And for the last 30 years, he's been exploring the ethical implications of technological change in all the different ways that we're potentially looking at it. And he's got books on on cloning and the ways in which genetic and cybernetic technologies may alter us. And then, of course, our digital economy. So, Nick, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you here. That's it's good to be here. Um, so I've been enjoying your book. It's from 2019, How to Be Human in the Digital Economy. And I'm going to leave a link in the description notes for people to grab it. And uh, with everything that's been happening in the news recently, with AI technology and calls for to create guardrails to that technology, I really wanted to talk to you. Um, I've, after I started reading it, actually, I saw it on the shelf in the uh, the Yale bookstore in here in New Haven, Connecticut. So um, it was just serendipitous for me to run into this. And, uh, you know, facilitating a sustainable balance in an AI-driven economy will be very likely necessary step for creating a long-term civilization. So I'm excited to kind of look at what this would look like. But um, I'd love to first start with a definition or two. What is a digital economy from the perspective of you and your book? And what is a social digital economy? Well, so in the book, I try to establish kind of a rough and ready contrast. So I'm, I'm a philosopher. I like to say things. I'm one of the philosophers who doesn't necessarily get caught up about definitions. So there's if I was to give you examples of the digital economy, and then to give you an example of the social economy, I think you'd roughly get it. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of things. You say, is that the digital economy, or is that the social economy, or is it a bit of both? But, I mean, you know, teachers and nurses, obviously, 
increasingly use digital economy, or sorry, digital tools. But if you were to ask them, I mean, if you were to ask a, a primary school teacher um, how they conceive of their job, and then you were to sort of go back in time and say, here we are in ancient Greece, this is how this person conceives of their job. Do you recognize this? I imagine some people would. They'd say primary school teacher. What? I mean, this is even if that's a, this is an antipodean term. So you probably don't even recognize that. But um, that's that job, sort of in a way, educating humans, is social economy because it's sort of yes, it's humans relating to each other and doing, uh, nurse. I mean, you know, doctor. Um, now, of course, digital economy. I guess where. I mean, to give a rough approximation is about, I guess, inventing and producing digital tools. And uh, yeah, of course, they're used by humans. But if you were to ask people how they conceive of their their jobs, they'd say, well, I've, it's all about the tech. And no, if you were to go back to ancient Greece, they wouldn't have any idea what I was what you were talking about. There's a concept that you use early on, uh, which is humanness and the value of humanness uh and especially what is the value of humanness in a digital age where efficiency is king so when and how is humanness valuable well it's a it's kind of like when you know, when people are asked to define pornography you know the i know it when i see it right. it's sort of like yeah well that's a nude that's a picture of a nude person but no that's not porn because i'm seeing it in an art gallery so, but then it's so in terms of humanness, um, I guess it's sort of, I think of the sort of the, the classic, you know, the sort of human relationships, um, uh, the things I value about my wife, uh, her humanness. I hope, I mean, she's, my wife is irritated frequently by my humanness, but these are kind of like essential features. And, uh, you know, when you th- sort of think about, well, there's a, an imaginable digital tech, I can easily imagine it, and you know, it's advances in generative AI have, have brought it closer, in which there is a digital tech that can do m- much of what I do without the irritations. Um, but I suppose humanness is this idea that, yeah, I, I'm not waiting to, you know, I mean, I, I'm not waiting for someone to put generative AI into the head of a sex robot and then to say, great, that's all I really needed. Right. Um, right. So that's sort of those are, I, I want to, I want to be with my wife and I prefer her over any digital tool. It's kind of the, so it seems like humanness is, well, my brain extrapolates out like what can machines replace? And it seems like they yes. can replace almost everything except humanness in this case. Um, yes. Um, yeah. yeah, and 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 when you you've referred to uh, human agency in the digital age as well, you know, uh, and what does human agency look like in this mission, you know, um, or, or to preserve human agency? That's the pro- the goal of your book. In some yes, way. I mean, I view it quite simply as I mean, your project is basically an expression of human agency. Human beings thinking that they, you know, they, you're not going to just do it by yourself. You're using digital tech right now. Yeah. We couldn't have this conversation without that. But in a way, they are just extensions of you. Um, and it would, I mean, I guess in a way, when you have 
I don't know, you, you were to name the software package you're using and say, well, basically, this was done by that. Of course, it needed some help from me. But in the same way that we, you know, somehow, well, who made Tesla? Well, there's this dude called Elon Musk. We give him all the credit and we omit other things. I mean, I'd, I'd be perfectly, I mean, because this is you, I'd be perfectly, if I was trying to describe who asked these questions, I'd say it was you. And I would, I would probably admit, yeah, I had a conversation with this dude in America. And yeah, there may have been some digital tech involved, but I forget what, and it's not interesting. So I think of those as sort of, yeah, that's what I mean by agency. Man, what if I was an AI, though, and you, and you didn't even know it? <laughs> well, but you see, this is, I mean, I think this is the fascinating question posed by ChatGPT right now. I, yeah, ChatGPT, I've, I've asked it, done the egocentric. You know, when Google, Google search came along and everyone basically ego surfed, I mean, how many times can I look up Nicholas Eger? Oh, oh. Oh, wow, some people have said some nasty things about me. But um, it's like ChatGPT does a pretty good version of me. So it, I ask it to write things in the style of Nicholas Ager, the philosopher. Mm. And I look at text and I say, I did not write that. Thought I might have. Right. Yeah, it's got the feeling. It's got the, it rhymes with Nicholas Ager, right? <laughs> you know. It does. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's it's a real challenge, isn't it? It's sort of in a way, it's almost like how much are we prepared to fight for human agency? There's an ChatGBT is an interesting topic because um, obviously it's a limited and, and flawed technology. But what I'm watching people, I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm watching civilization training themselves to anthropomorphize artificial intelligence before it even has actual consciousness, before it's actually an AGI. It seems like we're, as a culture, training ourselves to anthropomorphize it. And uh, none of these guardrails or these calls for, uh, you know, the, the, the holding off on AI is, is, are talking about making the technology less human-like. Um, yes, but I mean, I could see, I, I could see a year from now, we would already seeing uh, uh, support groups for people who have got entered into dating relationships with ChatGBT, and uh, mm. they've realized that it's just a machine that's never going to love them back. You know, uh, it, it's yes. yeah. No, that's that, I mean, I think that's a lot, nice way to put it. But it's kind of funny how we comply with our own. I mean, ever since I mean, gosh, ever since there was Surrey. People were asking Siri things, and then Siri doesn't get the right answer, and they shout some abuse, and they feel terrible. And you think, well, you just shouted at a product from Apple Computer, and then you don't feel bad. Um, but we comply with that. So, so, so long as we let these tools, so long as we conceive of what we do in, in ways that sort of favor them, then they'll gladly take our jobs. Mm -hmm. What's a philosophy professor anyway? Let's talk, about, let's talk about our jobs a little bit. So, you know, I feel like we've been outsourcing forms of labor ever since we started cooking food and, and, and instead of digesting raw meat, right? And, and every time that we do this, we have more bandwidth to increase our cultural mm -hmm. innovation and creativity. Why is this time potentially different? You know, what could the, our, our social lives become that 
we maybe are expecting or, or that aren't, we aren't expecting? See, it would be great. I think it's great you've asked that question and you almost want to ask that question and leave it hanging because any hasty answer suggests that I know. And right now, academics that I know are trying to frantically, well, they're, they're redesigning all the, all the work that they've, you know, the work that you get students to do because they're realizing they can't distinguish a lightly edited uh, contribution from ChatGPT, but they're also having to think, well, okay, if this, if this non-conscious, let's place it non-rational, just an autocomplete, a very sophisticated autocomplete algorithm that somehow has accessed, you know, 530 gigabytes of text, that and it's finding patterns in that. I mean, if it can, anything it can do, I mean, we've got to start conceiving of ourselves differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, lessons have, plans are going to change quick. They, <laughs> like, they have to be, not just lightly. I think they, many of them just have to be deleted. Mm. There is a phrase that you used as a, a bit of a warning phrase, I guess, uh, which is human exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what is human exceptionalism? And there's like, there's the biases and beliefs in that there's a, there's something to avoid there in terms of the way that we conduct ourselves in relation to technology. Well, I mean, I, so I I do have a bias and my bias is a bias toward beings like you, but you did tease me by telling me you could be an AI. Um, but, um, under those circumstances, I'm afraid, Robert, I would be disappointed. And it's a bias toward beings like you. Now, if we inhabit a world in which there are, I don't know, apparently decent human beings, like and I, I'm going to, I'm going to date myself here. You'll know, you know, you would still like, you know, the science fiction that people cite gives you a good indicator of how old they are. So I'm going to reference Star Trek: Next Generation. I'm going to talk about data. Now, in that world. I mean, I I don't want to destroy data, um, uh, but right now we don't have anything. I don't care. I mean, if someone were to decide, look, ChatGPT, it's just got to be deleted from every server, and if they had a good reason, I certainly wouldn't shed a tear. I mean, I all of the wonderful things you can do with it, I'd be worried about, but I wouldn't shed a tear for it. Mm. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Right. It's, well, it's a tool, right? At this moment, it's a tool. So let's, um, just for the purpose of the type one planet model, you know, we're, we're trying to design concepts around how are the best case scenario for our civilization with the existence of these technologies. Right. And, um, so let's talk about the digital, the social economy and the digital economy and really dive into what that would look like. Um, and you know, our current economy places highest values on roles that seem to be the most replaceable by artificial intelligence, things like financial analysis and coding, mm-hmm. and then the lowest value on things that can't be replaced potentially like a human, a friendly human barista or a preschool teacher. So yeah. this transformation seems to require a total flipping of the script of our economy or some sort of like economic collapse before we can make that shift where a preschool teacher is more valuable than a financial analyst, mm-hmm. you know, how does, how does that process even happen? It's, it's, uh, it's difficult to conceive of. Yeah. It's, yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to sort of think that it could happen 
without having to go by way of complete societal collapse. Um, it would be nice to think that we could just decide that preschool teachers were worth a lot more and that what they did was actually more important than what these jobs that basically can be done very well and in fact even better by various forms of generative AI. Um, but yes, people have a vested interest in the, the perks, the privileges, the perquisites that come with these established. I mean, being you're a financial advisor, that's you, you're, you're not paid the peanuts that you pay a primary school teacher, mm. typically. That's really interesting. So making that adjustment will be very difficult. I think there's going to, yeah, there's, I think there's got to be a perception shift in which we start openly talking about how every financial analyst and every coder is going to be replaced and that yeah. there's no value for our children to even be considering those as careers unless it's something that they're really passionate about. They don't do it if you really just want to make money, you know, but if yes. you really want to yes. make money, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and, and the opportunities to make money will fast disappear. So in a way, you look at, I don't know, Elon Musk was buying Twitter a good idea. Um, he did it, and probably he did it because he spends much of his life on Twitter. So like this thing that you're using all the time, you suddenly find that you're rich enough to own it. Then of course he buys it. But I mean, in terms of like, if you were, if you were thinking of, um, you know, those... CEO, what makes a good, talented CEO? I bet those kinds of biases and things like that. I love Twitter, therefore I'm buying it. I mean, it doesn't seem to me to be. I mean, if I was making a choice about where to invest my billions, you know, I can easily imagine a choice in which I'd say, well, yeah, I'll just, you know, I don't know if I want a charismatic CEO who's going to decide to own Twitter just because it's cool. Mm. Yeah, I want the, I don't know, the the machine that will decide, oh, well, this, I mean, you know, these Indonesian foodstuffs, that company's cheap. Right. That Yeah, that was the most expensive hobby purchase in human history. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, I mean, it's the standard pattern, isn't it? I mean, if you, I don't know if you follow soccer, football. But the pattern there, I've got far too much money. I'm going to buy a soccer team. Why don't I buy Burnley FC? Why not? Right. I mean, if you've got far too much money, why not? Now, um, in in respect to this potential new economy, actually, I was listening to an, a podcast you were on called Free Range with Mike Livermore. It's a mm -hmm. great oh, says Go check it out. Um I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. And um, we were, you were talking about the volunteer economy with him at some point, which is really interesting. And I assume maybe it's like a UBI economy or a, a more social digital economy. Um, and that, that could potentially result in increased segregation between social and racial groups, which was a surprising argument to me, but you made a great argument about it. Do you recall uh, talking about that? I mean, I, I've, I've thought, I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, I guess went away, but we, I mean, I guess it's a good thing about, you know, that's just the, the dollars and cents sort of economy that we operate in now is that it's actually, um, I mean, yes, I, if, I, 
yeah, you know, when you, when you've got a choice about who to help, um, and then you probably are. I mean, who do I want to help? Well, they're the kinds of people I relate to most easily. Mm. Whereas I suppose at least if I have a business and I'm selling cakes, oh, you don't really look like me, but it looks like you want to buy some of my cakes. So you're now a customer. I mean, so in a way, there's, I guess in a way, if we could, I mean, this is a feature of us. That there are, you know, my New Zealand Australian accent probably makes me a little bit not like you. Um, no, that's interesting. But in a way, if we were to just sort of follow our noses and sort of say, well, who do I most easily relate to? Would I be number one person for you to help? Right. Or would so in a way that when when we make it voluntaristic like that, I think there's a danger. Right. That yeah, when you, no one opts to be a barista these days unless they really love it and they love those mm-hmm. those inter- having those interactions right um but when you are a barista you're being forced to interact with tons of different cultures every day and it mm. creates a diversity of cultural life in that person's ecosystem right and, and yes uh and totally removing yeah a fully volunteer economy it does seem i, I actually agree with you that it would be uh it would be an environment where people could opt to only interact with the people that they yeah. are safe, feel safe with, you know, uh, that look like them, that sound like them. Well, there's certainly a lot of need there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't say, I'm not being selfish, because if I just focus on people exactly, I mean, you know, people like me are in need. Mm. Now, you can handle the people who are like you, and I'll ignore them. But in a way, that's it's one of the good things, isn't it? I mean, I wonder how many... People who were raised in racist families who suddenly find, well, I've got this job in Starbucks. And I, I was told stories about people who look like that. And actually, now I'm working with them. My right. stories are not true. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there's always, that's always the moral of the story is that exposure is the, mm. is the true anti-racism, you know, uh, just evaporate, you know, as long, the more you spend with people, the more you realize they're just human beings like you. Yes. Um, and it's something that we need to do. Yeah. 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 Have you thought or done any writing on the on universal basic income at all and what its effects would be like? I mean, I sort of a little bit. I mean, and I I sort of I always feel a bit suspicious when, you know, tech billionaires start thinking it's the answer. Mm. Um and it's sort of so that when I've I've read about it, and it always I always I feel a little bit suspicious about, you know, those of us who don't own capital in the digital economy. You know, I, I no, I don't own any of OpenAI or whatever, or the the dominant sort of things. So, so in a way, what scraps will I get? And I, you know, I wonder about the potential generosity of these people if they look at us and they say no genuine you know this philosophy stuff was well, so you may you may disagree but um generative ai has got that covered so we don't really need you to do your stuff mm-hmm. and you'll just be annoying anyway so i wonder about the scraps that will be left yeah or it exists under the government it's government money you know like a government crypto you buy government food you get your government gas it's all under the same yes. It's all one company, though. It's a, that's a monopoly in itself. And then yeah. something happens to that company, you're in a big, you're in a big shit yeah. show. <laughs> well, it's, it's 
It's yes. I mean, in a way, these are like sort of in a way. I always think when people are too confident about these futures, when they're just sort of marketing a future, it's like, well, I hope it turns out that way. It would be a lovely future, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Um, yes. I mean, you know, it wasn't wasn't Vladimir Putin supposed to be a nice guy a while ago, and then oh, I mean, it's like it's it's like beware what you. Don't rely on your forecasts, right? Well, I'm I'm in the business of marketing futures, so um. yes. <laughs> just from what I've read of your uh, plan, it's uh, I mean it's an ideal, right. not a not a forecast. Yeah, it's it's I'm trying to create a vision, which is it's been interesting reading your book is giving people something to believe in in a world where yes. they're they're finding it increasingly difficult to believe in anything um creating a potential future that people want you know well so giving someone to believe in is a great way to put it isn't it because if you just say it's a forecast and then you say well look i'm so confident this stuff will just happen it'll just arrive it's kind of like go back to sleep until it happens i mean you need a vision if i give you a vision well you've given me some work to do right I'm not yeah. just lazily waiting for it to be delivered. Yeah, there's not agency. Or... Yes, it's there's got to be a huge amount, mm-hmm. and it's it's like when the, these overconfident forecasters, you know, the singularity, according to Ray Kurzweil, is coming regardless of what we do. Just about. So, well, I'll just wait and see if that turns up. I doubt it, but I mean, in a way, there's nothing for me to do. But sit back and right. see what happens when the super intelligent machines turn up. Yeah, Kurzweil's perspective is interesting. You know, if you look at it from a physics perspective, it's like he's almost treating it like it's an it's an it's a a natural physical phenomenon, which everything around us is. So that's that's easy to make that argument that we're we're just very naturally going to click into that space at some point. It's going yeah, uh, no matter what. Well, it's like it's whenever anyone else, like it's a what the law of accelerating returns. Those things happen. It's like gravity. You know, gravity. There's no work is required to make sure that gravity keeps on happening. Mm. And it's like whenever anyone says, "Here's my ironclad law, which enables me to predict the future," it's just we'll sit back and watch it all unfold. I don't think that's. I think that's what we don't need. Right. Right. I um. I want to bring it back to the social economy a little bit because I feel like there is a a version of the social economy that exists in some places like Japan where basic interactions like holding hands or snuggling actually become a part of an a la carte dating surface. I've seen videos of, like it was probably like a Vice documentary or something. Mm-hmm. When you're out in the town, you can pay someone at a bar to hold your hand and then you can go to a snuggling bar and you know maybe after that a kissing bar or something uh, or a or, uh, uh, rub your hands through your hair bar and uh you know has the absolute commodification of every human interaction ever entered into your consideration here would human interaction actually become less meaningful well it's interesting that isn't it? i mean i haven't heard of those examples but it's almost like maybe when people are denied human attention so people will i mean it says something isn't it that you know there's some things that if you're denied access to them then you just say oh well I'll just cease wanting that. And there's a lot of stuff that the digital economy gives me that is a perfectly 
adequate substitute. So why don't I just want that? I mean, I can certainly be busy on the internet. Um, but it's interesting that, I mean, in a way, I think it says something about, well, I mean, in a way, it, but it, so it's kind of, it's, you might think, I don't know, the person, you go to Japan, I'm feeling lonely in Japan and I pay someone to hold my hand for a while. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? But I mean, it, it sounds peculiar to me. Um, but I suppose it's, I mean, someone is being paid to perform a human service that is literally just sitting there holding this poor <laughs> tourist's hand for a while. Yeah. Well, actually, it's. I think it's mostly Japanese businessmen and or and business women who have. They have dedicated their lives to increased efficiency and, and to increased uh, income, and they don't have time to have a relationship. And I think that's the yes. the, the crisis that's happening in Japan, where well, it's almost a reduction. You know, well, it's almost a reductio of that, isn't it? I mean, in a way, if this need, the you know the the need for you know to to be social. If you hem it in, it's almost like, I mean, if we were just machines, then we'd say, okay, delete that rubbish and get on with the stuff that we're supposed to do that makes money. But no, we're humans. So it's almost like you almost like would want to sort of ask those people, can you imagine yourself 20 years ago and imagine that you're now, I don't know, what are you paid for a five minute handhold? Mm. I mean, that you're paying someone to hold your hand for a while. I mean, do you get a conversation too? Right, right. Is it meaningful? Do they care? Right. <laughs> you know? But if the need to be with other human beings, mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously quite fundamental if it expresses itself in that way. I think it's going to... some That environment really, you know, uh, you mentioned at some point in the book that we're playing the roles of zoo animals, depressed, mm -hmm. fire-stimulating environments. And, and I think... There's a, a huge wave of depression and, and difficult things that we're that people are dealing with in the modern technological age. And I I think it's this this lack of meaning that we're we're that our interactions are losing meaning and, and our you know we yes we used to all well much more of us used to go to church because we believed in something and then mm -hmm. you know that that did give us meaning our community did give us meaning and uh, it's definitely a scary proposition you know paying for handholding. I mean, yes, it's it's something, but it sh does show you something. I mean, maybe that that the positive. I mean, it does show that it's, it's sort of need is fundamental. As long as we're human, we're not going to delete that. I mean, you think there's something bizarre and aberrant about that way of expressing a need to be social, but it does show that it must be a pretty fundamental urge, mm -hmm. because for many of the goodies that. You know, the digital economy offers, I don't know, I don't know what will happen when the U.S. bans TikTok, but I imagine most of the kids who are on TikTok who can't get on it will just segue onto something else. Right. Um, that, that, but that's not the way that it happens with the need to be with other human beings. Mm -hmm. We have had a couple of episodes about transhumanism, just because it's something that's interesting to me. Um, and... Uh, I was reading your description for Humanity's End, which is another book. I'll link in, link that in the description as well. Um, and you, I haven't read it, but the subtitles that you, we should reject radical enhancement. 
And you actually mentioned James Hughes, who was one of our previous episodes. Um, and, he, you know, James envisions a harmonious democracy of enhanced and unenhanced and everything is going to work well and, you know, could potentially work well. Could you just give us a little bit of an insight into what your perspectives are on transhumanism and, and humanism in general with technology? Well, I seem to run away. So it's almost like, I'm like, I know I guess it's a matter of, I mean, it's a matter of you having a conversation. If someone's trying to sell you something, they're trying to sell you something. And it's quite important to realize when someone's trying to sell you something. And it's a, there's a different way. When they're just trying to impart information that you may find useful or you may not. And I've always, I mean, I, I always think when I hear these pictures, I mean, it's like, you know, the, the future of a world without cancer. I want to live in that world. I mean, cancer's scary for a lumbering, you know, trillion-cell beast to be. You know, it's like, you know, that's a terrifying pro a prospect. But I mean, it's sort of when someone seizes off on that need, desire to be in a world without cancer, and then says, "I can give it to you." So I always feel a little bit like that about many of the transhumanist stories. I mean, Nick Nick Bostrom's famous for them, and they seem lovely. And it's like, yes, I mean, there are so many other stories that seem lovely, but the gap between, I mean, if it, if you just think, well, tech's going to give it to us, that's the, but, you know, it's just going to come to us because by the way, these chips will be designed and don't worry, they can just, you know, who wants, who wants a biological hippocampus right. when you can have this snazzy replacement, I mean, truck that junk out. Uh, I mean, it's it's like those are things that I feel suspicious of because I think that there are, I remember the, I mean, just the, I mean, if you want to, if you want to have your work as a scientist, cancer site is covered in the New York Times, well, just forecast a cure for cancer in two years and you've got their attention because everyone wants that. So there are certain things that sort of pop pay to our desperation and I feel something about that when I hear transhumanist pictures I think that would be lovely but then when someone they when they don't do the how do we get there bit when the how do we get there bit is don't worry some super smart people probably including a dude called Elon Musk you know I don't know they'll invent the tech and then we'll just get it and then it will be there. And then there's sort of in a way they then just say it's going to be wonderful. Right. And then we'll live to be 300 and yeah. we'll all invest in the future. And we'll all invest in the future. <laughs> yeah. We'll, yep. we'll all away on Pluto. You know, we'll, I mean, lovely. Right. Right. Yeah. This, it, it, they're all different forms of marketing. It's, it, marketing has been a really interesting theme in this entire Type 1 Planet project of, trying to recognize when something is being marketed like you said um and when something is being given a really balanced representation pure as well, I, what it I could look like, like it's good to sort of you need a bit of marketing yeah your type one planet needs some marketing because the first reaction is well me oh why do i want to be part of that i don't care mm -hmm. so you need to get me interested but then it's kind of like it's got to be, I mean, there's got to be a part of the story that's here's how you can do it. That sort of seems 
appeals to my agency, potential sense of a need to contribute to it. I mean, I guess the Marxists had that right. I mean, it will except the ones who sort of said the revolution's coming regardless, but the ones who said, no, you've got to go out and make the revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least they were saying, well, look, you've got to do something. Right. So any vision that says you've got to do something, rather than just waiting for Elon Musk to invent it and give it to you for free, not. Um, yeah, I, I feel suspicious of those stories. Right. Would you write this? You this is 2019 that you released this just before a pretty wild time <laughs> in a yeah. in the world. Would you change anything if you re if you wrote it today? You know, after the pandemic and new wars and new AI technology, anything that has changed in your I mean, mind? I, mean, I I changed loads of it. I know it's sort of. I was like examples are great. I mean, but they would be the, the fundamentals remain the same. Mm. And you always think, whoa. I mean, like all of these. People, I mean, all the war talk that's happening now. And you think, well, yes, I don't want to be in a war. Um, How did we get there? That's such a crazy transformation. And that would be a good example, wouldn't it? I mean, when people start, I mean, because wars, if I remember rightly, often involve killing people. And they often involve killing people who you have no reason to want to kill. You don't dislike them. You've never met them. And it's like, yeah, so in a way, anything that sort of, any kind of interaction between people who are different that makes that idea, the mere conceit, the the mere idea of just killing people in another place mm. that makes that seem absurd would be good, wouldn't it? I, uh, I come from a generation that has been famously anti-war or, you know, just don't buy into the politics. We grew up during the the Bush era, you know, and and all that. And then all of a sudden, I'm seeing posts online of people that I know and like were like, "We have to kill Putin." <laughs> and I'm like, "What are you talking about? I can't. This is, you know, it, it's. I understand what they're feeling, but it's just a, it's, it's an incredible transformation, you know. That and they bought into that form of marketing as well, I guess. Yes, no, in a way, that's kind of funny, isn't it? When you think that that's, well, the things that we fault Putin for are exactly, well, in part, the things they're expressing there. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, he wanted to kill Zelensky because he thinks this nation called Ukraine shouldn't exist. And mm. um, it's almost like you buy into the same ideology. Right. It is. There's something wrong about that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit to the philosophy of artificial general intelligence for a little bit because and there's another book that you've written that I'm excited to check out that I haven't yet called Life's Intrinsic Value. And so I wanted to ask you, what is the intrinsic value of life and does theoretical artificial life, how does that fall into that model? I mean, so that book, I mean, was something that was the first book I wrote. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, then they let me write other books. So it was an environmental ethics. And I was asking a philosophical question about, well, what is it? I mean, is there, so I was very, you know, you know the philosopher Peter Singer. I was, so in my part of the world, in Australasia, he was probably even more influential than he was in the U.S., 
or is in the U.S. But I mean, the, the value of sentient life and sentience as the marker of value. And I sort of, I guess, noticed a tension that said, well, in a way, that sort of emphasis on protecting sentient beings, it's, it's good for my dog. It's good for lots of beings, but it sort of, in a way, gives us skewed priorities in respect of the environment. So it was an attempt to consider sort of biological life. Mm. So it wasn't looking at sort of artificial life and to work out what make what might make it valuable, whether there's a way of valuing it apart from it didn't and apart from its potential sentience. The the well we we've been working on this on our side as well, you know, and I think I think I think the big idea from our perspective is that it's it's a fallacy to tr- a fallacy to treat human beings, for example, as different or separate from the rest of our biosphere. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're literally made up of trillions of non-sentient beings that are all working together and for some in some incredible and strange way to create one. So, you know, and and if you that that whole spectrum from every microbe in the crust of the earth to every microbe in the floating around in the sky, there's like, it seems to be this incredible spectrum of complexity. Right. Mm. And, uh, that's all one thing, (laughs) you know? And, uh, I think that's where people do lose perspective, you know, where they, they put a lot of emphasis on consciousness or capability and they forget that if you just take humans and you put them on Mars, you know, you haven't saved humanity. You've changed humanity. You know, that's a different kind of human being that's going to live out there. Um, well, so hence your emphasis on doing it on Earth, right? Right. Yeah, let's do it right first here before we take it elsewhere. <laughs> yes, yes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to trust us with another planet, really, would you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Anders Sandberg, who is a... He was, he's been on... He's going to be dropping this week is the second episode with him. He was like... Was it Anders? No, no, it was Kareem Jabari. He said, uh, like, maybe we should learn to use the things we have before we start buying new stuff. Yes, no, that, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, I guess in a way we're not good at accepting limits on what we do. But I guess if you were to say, well, look, I don't know, if, I were, if there was some ultimate authority, would you be trusted with another planet? Mm-hmm. Um, after what's been happening here, mm. you um used a phrase that I really like, and I might start using uh, called collective destiny. And you and you say, uh, "What's that issue here? Is our control over our collective destiny?" Mm-hmm. And my question for you is, from from your perspective, have we ever had control over our collective destiny? <laughs> Is that something that uh, the human beings can do? Well, I would. I, I, it's. I. I don't think we ever have, but it would be great if we could, because there are some things that we need to do that we can't really do, except by doing them collectively. Mm. Or maybe we could submit to the AI, and just have it do it and impose what it would decide as the best decision for humanity on us. But as sort of as to whether we can actually sort of find, I mean, you know, the, the solution, a solution for climate change that 
doesn't just involve saying, well, I don't want to do it, so I'll pass the responsibility on to you. In a way, that's the, the buck passing sort of response that sort of isn't a really, that's not a way of saying we're going to take control collectively of our collective destiny. That's that's a that's a way of saying, well, poor people, you you've had the crappy end of it thus far, but you can keep on doing it. And of course, given that you're used to crappy, we'll get used to more because we're going to be asking a lot more of you. That's yeah. not, yeah, that's not a way to respond to climate change. Yeah, it's 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 it is so fascinating because we're starting to realize. As a, with the advent of the internet uh, and you know international communication pathways like this, where we're literally on the opposite sides of the planet, um, twelve hours or thirteen hours apart, um, the advent of that technology, we've been able to start passing around these ideas of like, okay, well, you know, there's these big problems that we've never even been able to look at. I, I think this is a, my favorite part of. You know, it's not doom and gloom, but it's 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 humanity being able to start thinking as a unit, looking at something mm. like climate change, or you know, if there's even bigger picture things that we cover in Type One Planet, like the the Earth will become enveloped by the Sun at some point. You know, it might be a billion years from now, but that is period going to happen. Um, you know, and is it possible that we could survive that if we are able to to collaborate? to uh, a greater extent than ever thought possible. And well, but isn't that a, a great way to do it, to ask it? Because it seems it must be, almost be a question. And then as soon as you offer it as a question, I guess the first reaction is, I don't know. But it it sounds like it's almost like it's a challenge. And it's a challenge that, I don't know, even the the richest billionaire of the world can, can't do. Mm-hmm. But it is potentially something we could do together. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that from a religious perspective, that is Judgment Day, right? <laughs> you know, like it does exist. It, guaranteed it will happen. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, is that, you know, it, 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 is that something that we can believe in as a humanity that can survive that? It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. And it's also um, this entire conversation is just absolutely fascinating from the perspective of, of getting to play around and and that's why i love hearing you talk and i loved your podcast i recommend everyone go read and listen to um to nick's stuff because you really do treat it with a playfulness and a consideration for allowing for ambiguity which i think is incredibly important in these conversations so i wanted to thank you for that it's it's a and it's an important approach for these kinds of these kinds of conversations well, the world needs more ideas, so I wel- welcome ideas. And it almost like in my discipline of, acad- of analytic philosophy, sort of there's too much, I believe that there's too much emphasis on all of these sort of, yeah, you know, making ideas too precise too early mm. doesn't really give anyone else an opportunity to basically respond to those ideas and and basically say well I like the idea but it's not quite right I would do this with it mm-hmm. which is like I think that's the sincerest form of flattery for a thinker to have someone say yes here's your idea you know good 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 but no not that no I'd change that mm. that's 
way. I mean, it gives other people an opportunity to. It gives the the idea uh, the idea an opportunity to breathe. Mm. Because I'm curious, when you hear a new idea, what do you, what questions do you ask in your mind, saying, "Is this person trying to sell me something, or is this person trying to give me?" Uh, a, a guarantee that I guess that's selling, you know, that, that, that isn't, isn't founded. Do you kind of have a, a rubric in your mind that you run the idea through saying, okay, does it fulfill these requirements? <laughs> I do have a rubric and I guess you picked the first question on my rubric and that is what's this person trying to sell? It's like, you know, the, the door to door salesperson, knock, knock, knock on the door and you go, oh, let me just walk you into this beautiful house here. Why are you showing me this beautiful house? It's like when people, yes, people, yes, I mean, it's like, why are you telling me this? And so in a way, I run it through that first. That's a, a bit cynical, but, um, you know, there are many ideas that where people say, no, it's just a beautiful idea, and I think it would be great for the world if more people believed it. Hmm. And that's, I don't know, if that's if that's a kind of selling, that's a selling I can sign up for. Hmm. It's it's honest, and it's true, yes. you know? Yes, 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 yes. Right. Well, uh, thank you for contributing to this idea, and uh, I, I'm really excited to stay in touch with you, Nick, and and, and potentially speak after some some more of your books come out you're an incredibly prolific writer so it's going to be well, exciting I've got, a, I've got something quite experimental coming out yeah what's uh, going on an academic press uh so it's with routledge and it's a it's a dialogue it's called dialogues on human enhancement and um it's basically a book that uh it's coming out in september um and it's a book in which a numerous people debate whether, if at all, enhancement technologies should be applied to human beings. So I've got four characters, and and they have at it. I mean, there's there's no love lost between them. So, Interesting. Anyway, so that's it's kind of like a uh, a, a Plato dialogue style. These yes. are f- fictional characters. Interesting. Wow. They're fictional characters, but they I want to not be because I'm. The Socratic, but Plato, Platonic dialogues. Yeah, that, that was my first ever exposure to philosophy, and I absolutely loved them. Mm. But the, the one thing that sort of annoyed me as I went on was just the the dominance of this Socrates character. Mm. I mean, he, patronizing almost. Well, he wins everything, and everyone's an idiot. And you know, and the luckiest, the famous generals, you think they'd know a thing or two about being brave? No, they're idiots. And so I wanted to basically level the playing field, as it were, and say, well, no, I'm not. There's no Socrates character who's going to basically ask people what they believe, claim to know nothing, ask people what they believe, and then show that even though he thinks he's ignorant, the other person must be pretty stupid because, you know, the person who thinks they know. So these are all people who think they know, and they're going to vigorously contend. But um, there's no character who's going to be winning. I have a transhumanist. Um, and that character gets to have their say. And other characters, I have a bioconservative who rejects all form of human enhancement. 
and they all basically sort of have at it. And I don't want any of them to be the winners because I view questions about human enhancement as uncertain. And for us to be looking at, you know, digital tech, um, the, the ones that are being offered as being integrated into our bodies and say we know the answers now about them, we don't know anything. Well, you know, we know something. But if you were to ask that same question, ask me again in 2050, well, I bet I won't be saying the same thing. Well, I'll be dead. But um, I bet I won't be saying the same thing. I'll, I'll ask your, your chat GBT model in 2050. Good, good. Yeah, yeah, yes, okay. yes. I hope that, that doesn't say the same thing. But yeah, so that's my, my next thing. I love that. It's such a great idea. I'm really excited to read that. It's going to be fun. Yes. Well, you know, and, and so what I want to see, I'm teaching it to a group of students now, and I've just told them, well, you're going to have, you've never heard of enhancement technologies, but um, I bet you got few, I bet if I tell you about some of them, I bet you'll have views. Like glasses. Old woman's like, oh, oh. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you'll have all sorts of different views. Mm-hmm. And I, believe it or not, I may have written too many books about this, but I'm not here to tell you the truth. I'm here to say, well, look, you know, offer it, you know, don't debate me, debate my characters. And by the way, I've made them all selectively stupid in the dialogue. So you can tell them they're idiots mm-hmm. and they've quite taken to that. I love that. Would you have, would you come on here and do a little debate if I brought you in with James Hughes or Anders Sandberg? Yes. You'd love that? Uh, all right. I've debated them. <laughs> they, they they inform uh, a character. Yeah, I don't know if they would rec- respond to all aspects of this character. Mm. But they, yeah, no, they, yep. I It'd would. be interesting to do it within the lens of a type one planet model and thinking about what's the best way. Well, that's we a could great way to do it. Proactively design our civilization, yeah. Well, why don't you do that? Say, so here are the ground rules. Yep. So as soon as... As soon as someone says, yes, and then we're off to Mars, say, ah, no, <laughs> no, no. Right. Oh, well, then we're becoming digital spacefaring beings. Uh, no. Yeah. Um, those are not the ground rules. Right. We're just trying to survive the next couple thousand years. Well, <laughs> if we can, let's do that first and then talk about, you know, going to Andromeda Galaxy. Yeah. Um well, great. And is there anyone that you think I should have a conversation with um, that uh, I potentially haven't spoken with or haven't heard of yet? Um, I, I don't know. Who do you want to talk to next? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there's a world of people out there. Obviously, this this podcast, I, I, it, it's going well. Yeah, it's, it's so far it's going it's going great. And yeah. I, I think diversity of opinion has been really important from my perspective. You know. Is there someone that you've had conversations with that challenged, challenged what you said in, in a wonderful way or, or, um, but I think it would be in relation, maybe we can, you can think about it a little bit and come back to me, but knowing now what the type one planet model is, is there's someone who's thinking a lot in, in, in terms of the future in that way that might be. Well, I mean, it's just, that's a daring idea. I mean, if it's, is it, if it's a prediction about how things will turn out, I'd say I doubt it. But if it's something, if you offer it to me as something worth fighting for, I can easily see that. I think it is. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope you have a good night over there in 
New Zealand and I'll have a good morning here in, in Connecticut. <laughs> Marvelous. Okay. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Oh, oh, real Thank quick. You. Sorry, before I cut off, uh, where should people go to, to talk to, with you or follow you? you? You mentioned Twitter at some point. Where else? I'm, I, well, I have a website, mm-hmm. um, nicholasagar.com. I mean, but so my presence on so Twitter, I mean, yes, I'm a minimal tweeter. Mm. Um, and yes, but I guess, yeah, my, my website. Okay. All right, great. I'll link that. Well, thank you again. This is a, an absolute pleasure. You're, you're really fun to talk to. Great. I enjoyed it. <laughs>